Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can we talk? This man who reached out to a world he knew only through the radio. I am a talk show's for busy. Bradley J. With conversation till gone. Jay talking. No matter what the topic, just make sure your radio's on. We heard your message on the radio. WBZ News Radio 1030. WBZ. Jay talking live, midnight to five. We're going to science the heck out of this hour. What the heck are we talking about, Bradley J., you ask? Well, space, man. Rob Simcoe is here. And thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, Brad. All right. We're going to talk about dark matter. Not dark energy, dark matter. It's super complicated. I mean, I suppose it's as complicated as we make it. We'll, we'll give two or three levels of complication. Before we get to that, and before we get to the Mars lander, it's not a rover, it's not roving, it's landed, I want to find out more about what you do. So that's pretty much up to you to decide how to how to go from here on what you do. That's fair enough, Bradley. So uh, what I do is a combination of teaching and research uh, because I work at MIT and the research that I do is probably of most interest to your audience. Uh, It's a combination of things. I work on building very large telescopes and the instruments that go on their their output ports. So large means that they have a diameter of their largest optic, which is measured in many meters. Uh, so Meters? The that, yes. Oh, so they are big. Yeah, so the the telescope that I typically use has a entrance aperture of six and a half meters in diameter. Ooh, you typically use this? Yep, so I go down several times a year, uh, and it's located in the Chilean Andes. 20 feet across, basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the telescope itself is about the size of a small house, uh, and it sits on oil bearings and can rotate in uh, azimuth and elevation. We can point it to any place in the sky. Uh, and the surface of the mirror is controlled to within a fraction of a micron, even though it's an extremely large piece of glass. So it's not a telescope like you're used to seeing. This telescope is a reflecting telescope. So it has a concave mirror, which is the primary optic. And that mirror is sort of like a big version of the shaving mirror that you might have in your bathroom or a makeup mirror that, uh, that magnifies what you would see. But because it has a very large area, it's not because we want to magnify things. It's because we want to see things that are extremely faint. So you want to get the most light. Yeah, that's right. You can think of light as uh, as being comprised of little particles, which we would call photons. Uh, And it's almost like rain that's falling out of the sky onto us. And we want to collect the largest number of those we can because we're looking at sources that are all the way across the universe. So the sources I look at, their light has been coming to us since the universe was about 4 or 5% of its current age. And what was that age? The present age of the universe is 13.8 billion years. Okay. Plus or minus 0.1. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, because those sources are so far away, they're very, very, very faint. It's sort of like when you take a light bulb and you move it further away, it gets fainter. So if you move it 13.8, you know, well, in this case, about 13 billion light years away, it gets exceedingly faint. And so the number of photons that are falling on us is, is very small. And so we need a, a, 
the equivalent of a large bucket to collect them all. How do you know if a photon comes from a 13 million year old source or a closer source? Oh, that's a good question. So the, we measure the age of a photon by its color. And the way that we can do that is uh, thanks to Hubble's law. So originally, the, the claim to fame of Edwin Hubble, before he had a space telescope named after him, uh, was in that he discovered the fact that sources that are farther away from us in the universe are racing away from us at a higher speed. And uh, this is a natural consequence of the Big Bang. Uh, and that means that if we can measure things that are moving away from us extremely fast, then okay. those are the furthest and most distant sources. And the way that we measure how fast something's moving away from us is by its Doppler shift. Okay. Good. I'm glad I asked that. Because you have to know and accept that the universe is expanding and the stuff that's further away is going faster. That's right. Well, how does, the, how, Why is that? Why would something further away be going faster? Because it's been expanding longer? Uh, it, it and is, if it's accelerating, then it would have accelerated. It would be going faster because it's been moving for a longer time. Yeah, it, it's because the way I like to think about it is... Uh, imagine that there's a bunch of dots on the surface of a balloon and you're inflating that balloon. Yeah. And then you're measuring the distance between any two dots on the balloon. Uh, and you, but you have to measure across the surface of the balloon. You have to like, take a piece of string and connect it between two dots. And then you measure the distance between that string, uh, between the two dots by measuring the length of that string. And then you inflate the balloon and then those dots that are still on the surface of the balloon, but they're a little further apart as measured on the surface of the balloon. But the, the rate at which those dots are moving apart, if you, if you have two dots that are very close to each other on the surface of the balloon, the speed at which they're moving apart from each other is pretty small. But if you have two dots that start out far away from each other, as the radius of the balloon expands, the speed at which they're moving away from each other is correspondingly larger. And it's the same with the universe. Um, sometimes people uh, draw an analogy to baking a loaf of bread that has raisins in it or something like this too. As the, as the thing expands, all dimensions get larger, uh, but the things that start out the furthest away are moving away the fastest. Okay. Wow. So we have just begun to uh, understand what it is you do for a living, and we already get pretty deep there. We're already in. Yeah, so we're, you, we're you, in deep. You use <laughs> um, optical telescopes. This is not infrared. These are you can actually look through them and see stuff. We can. Uh, we almost never do look through. I, I've been lucky enough that I've looked through a six and a half meter telescope on a couple occasions, uh, but you have to arrive on a particular day. That the time is very valuable on these facilities. Uh, you know, it's many tens of thousands of dollars per night in value. So you just record, them. record, record, and then watch it after. Exactly. So the recording, we, we usually don't take videos. Uh, usually, we'll take the equivalent of a digital picture, uh, not with a digital camera like you would buy at the camera store, um, but instead. Uh, with specialized instruments, uh, which either record an image as a camera would, so taking a picture, uh, or we can actually measure the colors of light. Uh, that's what we call taking a spectrum, uh, where we shine it through, the, we take the light from the telescope and shine it through a prism, uh, and then that spreads the light out into its colors. That's how we actually measure Doppler shifts, is by taking uh, shining light through these uh, spectrometers. By the way, which color signifies greater speed? Red is slow and blue is faster? No, it's the other way. Things that are moving away from us yeah. are uh, shifted to the red. Okay, so they're going faster. 
That's right. So you can think about it like, you know, when a car drives by you, when it's driving towards you, it has a higher speed and it kind of goes as it goes yep. by and it goes to a lower frequency. It's the same thing. So light that has lower frequency is redder. Uh, and so something that's coming towards us would be blue. It would appear bluer than it actually is. Something that's moving away from us would appear redder than it is because its wavelengths are all stretched by the Doppler effect. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is that uh, the, the primary evidence that the Big Bang happened is that if we look at the whole universe, there is only one galaxy in the whole universe that's blue shifted. And every other star and galaxy in the universe outside of the Milky Way is red shifted. So everything is moving away from Except us. Except for one. Except for one. And, and that one is, is our closest neighbor. That's the Andromeda galaxy. You can actually go out in the night sky and see it with your bare eyes. So, so that, that, that be... one's falling towards us because we're gravitationally oh. bound to it. Every other galaxy that we're not gravitationally bound to is, is zooming Every away from other us. one? Every single one. Out of the one. thousands and thousands and millions and millions. Billions and billions, yeah. Are going away. Yeah. Isn't it weird that there's only one coming towards? The universe is a big place. It's mostly empty space, right? There, there's only this one galaxy that, that we're actually gravitationally tethered to. Uh, it, so the Milky Way and Andromeda are similar to each other in size. Wow. And they're, they're going to reach each other in about, um, ooh, how long will it be? Another 7 billion years or so. We'll actually collide. Back to your telescope, and then we'll take a break. You sure. talked about it six and, six and a half meters across. And how do you measure the surface of the mirrors to make sure that they're perfect? Oh, the, that's a, a really interesting process. So there's a couple of ways. We, we first measure it in the lab before we take it down to the mountain. Uh, and when we measure it in the lab, uh, you shine laser light off the surface of that mirror. And then you compare that to a reference laser of known frequency uh, and, uh, and an optic that has a perfectly known shape to it. And then you combine the light that comes from our six and a half meter mirror with the light that comes from another reference optic. And if the shape of the big mirror is perfect, then those waves will cancel each other out. Ah. Uh, and if it's imperfect, then they don't cancel each other out. And you see the part that's imperfect. Yeah, and then you see you see ripples on the surface from the laser light that comes back that's not canceled. How do you fix it? Uh, you polish it. So you take another piece of glass that is covered with um, what we call pitch. It's like pine tar. And then you rub it with a, a very, very fine abrasive until the, the peaks uh, are moved down and the valleys are smoothed out. Now, What's that, the abrasive and how fine is it? Uh, the abrasive is so fine that it feels, it, it doesn't even feel like sandpaper. It's like liquid? Yeah, they used to actually use uh, rouge. Well, you always suspend it in liquid. So it's like a slurry. Yeah. Uh, and the kind of rouge that people use as makeup to put on their cheeks to make it red, uh, you wouldn't think that that's an abrasive, but it's actually a very hard powder. Um, and when you suspend that in water, it can be used to polish mirrors. And that's basically what you use? Uh, nowadays, they use another substance called cerium oxide, but it's the same, Still, that's same cool. kind of thing. Let's go back to the beginning and ask. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What else is it you do? You work with telescopes. You, you build them. What else do you do? 
Well, then we look through them. Or, well, actually, we, we observe with them. And I study how stars and galaxies form. Uh, and that's a process that started all those many years ago, those you know 13-odd billion years ago. And we have to figure out how we got from a state where the universe was largely smooth in uh, without form and shape. Uh, smooth. Yes. Smooth as I think of smooth? Smooth as in the density of matter in the universe was exactly the same everywhere to within one part in 100,000. So there was just so this matter that was yeah. all the same, undifferentiated. It was undifferentiated, and it was uh, uniformly distributed everywhere. And now that's very much not the case. So uh, now all of the matter that we see is segregated into stars and galaxies. So this matter. And then it's filled, most of the volume of the universe is empty space. So, so the this, matter has, has gone from being uniformly distributed to being very tightly clustered. So this undifferentiated matter is post-Big Bang? Yes. Okay. Is it, does it have a color? My brain wants to have give it a color. It, my brain says it's gray. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> would it have a color? Well, before the stars turned on, and we don't know exactly when that happened. Oh, right. It would be dark. But it would so be dark. So there'd be no light, and so there would be no color that yeah. we would know. Yeah, so sometimes we call it the dark ages. Now, in the very, very first uh, years after the Big Bang, uh, for a few hundred thousand years, the universe was so hot that it would have glowed. Um, it would have made its own light. That's right. Uh, in the same way that your toaster glows. Like, you, you heat anything up to a certain temperature. You know, if you heat it, any object around you up to several thousand degrees, it's going to glow orange. Mm. That's why the sun glows. Um, but as things cool off, then they will glow in redder and redder colors, right? So we, uh, when we're born, we always think that red means hot. And then at some point, when we think we're more sophisticated, we learn that blue is actually hotter than red. Right. Uh, and that red is cooler. And then even cooler becomes infrared and so on. And then at some point, it's not glowing anymore. And at that point, the universe was just completely black. So it had no color. And so I'm sorry to disappoint you, but uh, until the stars turned on, there wasn't any light of any sort. Well, if the stars turned on, when they first turned on, it was probably probably dim light, and then that stuff might have seemed gray. Anyway, so how long after the Big Bang was this undifferentiated matter there? Instantly and forever, it was this undifferentiated matter. How dense was it? Was so, it gaseous, or was it, I mean, could you t walk on it? Uh, it would have been extremely dense, but as the universe gets bigger, the amount of matter in it stays the same. So, so it spreads out. It spreads out, and the density goes down and down. So for the first couple of minutes after the Big Bang, so 10 minutes or so, the density was so high that it was like the inside of a star, and it could sustain nuclear fusion. So in the first few minutes, uh, all of the hydrogen and helium and some of the lithium were formed. But after that, it was too cold to sustain nuclear fusion. Okay. Uh, and at that so point— So it was just spread out evenly, and then gradually— it coalesced into chunks due to its due to gravity. Yeah, so it stayed completely uniform for about three hundred thousand years, and the reason for that is because uh, the when it would try to coalesce into structures, so it, gravity tends to make things want to cluster because if you have a perfectly smooth field, that's not a stable configuration. If there's even one little uh, area that has a slightly higher density, it's going to have more gravity. Yeah. And then it'll start to pull more matter in. And then it has more gravity. And then it pulls more matter in. Then there's more gravity and so on and so forth until everything just collapses into one big black hole or, or some large star. Um, it, the, in the very early universe, that process was stopped because as the matter would try to collapse, then 
It's also the case is you put more matter into something, there's more pressure. And the pressure is going to try to prevent it from collapsing. And so the pressure was high enough that it could actually stop gravity. But after about 300,000 years, the pressure got low enough that it could no longer stop gravity from making structures. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting is even during that time before the matter, like we're used to seeing, like gas, uh, was able to form a star, there was this other stuff called dark matter that was quietly in the background doing its thing, and it was not interacting with normal matter. And it was able to form uh, the sort of, what I'd like to think of as a skeleton of galaxies. Uh, so that once the pressure was released from regular matter, it could just fall onto the dark matter and make galaxies. So Big Bang, there's this extremely homogeneous, undifferentiated matter. It seems so random to me. Let's back it up before the Big Bang. And I know this is a second grade question. And I'm not trying to be smart. I'm just trying to understand. It's spectacularly difficult to understand that everything could be shrunken down to something that small. And why didn't whatever this pinpoint of extremely dense material, why didn't that form a black hole way before it got to being that dense? If you take matter, it gets denser and denser and denser, poof, you have a black hole. Why wasn't it just a black hole? Why was there this thing that was not a black hole but extremely dense, dense enough to create everything? If you had a... If you had something so dense, it's the head of a pin, and there was enough matter in it to later create everything, how did that not become a black hole? It was be so dense. There must be some major thing I'm not getting. <laughs> no, so a black hole is a uh, collection of matter that's so dense that there, you can't, information can't escape from that black hole because it would, the information is transmitted at the speed of light. Gravity is so intense that even light can't get out. That's right. Why wouldn't anything that was that small and then had so much matter and it could create everything, why wasn't it that dense and why didn't it have a, a gravity just like a black hole? Why wasn't it a black hole way before it got to be that small? So uh, there's a line of reasoning that would say that the entire universe, you can think of it as a closed system that information can't escape from that. And it may be that uh, essentially, we're inside. We, we often talk about it as our horizon, is the part of the universe that we can see. Um, and our horizon is not the horizon like you think of it on the, the surface of the Earth, where there's the Earth is curved, and so you can't look past a certain distance. Um, in cosmology, we can't see past a distance that's equal to the speed of light times the age of the universe. Yeah. Right? And so there, you can think of it as like a sphere, and everything that's inside of that is the part of the universe that we we can access that information. There's more universe beyond the outside of that sphere. Um, Is there anything in it? Yeah, yeah, there's there's more matter in it. There's okay. other stars, there's other galaxies. There's and other it goes galaxies. on forever? Uh, yeah, yeah, it should go forever. on forever. But see, that's a hard thing to grasp, forever. Yeah, that's right, but we, we just can't see it. I, even though it, it's out there, okay. it's, it's irrelevant to us uh, because we, can, we have no causal contact with it. Uh, and so in that sense, you can think of the, the universe that we're in within our horizon, almost like a black hole, and that there's no information crossover uh, from one side to the other. Okay. I mean, it kind of answers my question. Something that was so small and so dense that caused the Big Bang, mm -hmm. it just seems like it would be so small and so dense it wouldn't be able to bang. 
because it would be coming collapsing in on itself like a black hole. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be able to escape. No explosion would be able to escape out, mm -hmm. escape out. That's tough to deal with mentally, but uh, so I'll, I'll just leave it hanging there. Let, let me address a couple of things. So I, I still find it completely remarkable that the entire matter content of the universe could be squeezed onto the head of a pin. Uh, and I say it all the time. I, I use it on a day-to-day -day basis in my work. Uh, and yet I, I have, have never stopped finding that amazing. And it is interesting that what physics gives us is the tools to rewind and fast forward the history of the universe using the laws of, of physics. And we can apply those. And essentially what we do is take what the universe looks like today and we rewind it back to very early times. And the way I like to think about it is that if we see that everything in the universe is flying away from everything else, that's the reason that we know that it all started from one point. Yeah. Right? But you just have to rewind it back far enough. But that, that assumes that it's a constant rate of acceleration, but it isn't. I mean, what if it's, what if it, it started from like in a semi, it maybe if, if you want to rewind and it didn't go all the way back to the size of a pearl, mm -hmm. but if it just sort of started out as a, a thing that's a fraction of as big as it is now, and then started slowly and accelerated. I don't know, this is crazy because I'm sure the math doesn't bear this out. But the, since the universe is uh, expanding at an accelerated rate, what if it started out accelerating really slowly from bigger than the head of a pin? Now, that's a reasonable question. And I'll say two things to that. One is, how do we know how small it started. Yeah. That, that's really the question. Really, it asking. just kind of satisfies an equation. It satisfies an equation, but it also makes some predictions. And we know that at the very earliest time in the universe was when the light elements of the periodic table were formed. And as I was saying before, there was a time when the universe was so small, when it was just a few minutes old, that it had a high enough temperature that it could fuse hydrogen into helium, and it could also make deuterium and these other light elements. And the prediction of the physical model tells us how much hydrogen there should be, how many hydrogen atoms per helium atom per lithium atom in exquisite detail. And, and that's what it actually matches the observations oh, that we I have. See. And that's how we know that our model is good to at least when the universe was about two or three minutes old. Okay. Uh, and it was extremely small at that point relative to what it is now. It's Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Not, you know, size of a pin at that point, but it, it's, it, that's actually a good question. In the first three minutes, you say? Uh, in the first two or three minutes, yeah. That's when the, the hydrogen was fused into helium. So the, the universe is something like 75 to 80% hydrogen, and most of the rest is helium. How do you deal with the randomness of why then? Why 13.8 billion years ago did it go bang? Why? And well, when you that, ask that, that question, was, I was, when I was going the hand to, of God answer almost makes more sense than any, than any, as much sense as anything else. Yeah, th that's what I was going to get back to Jim's question. Yeah. Is that uh, the laws of physics give us the tools to rewind and fast forward. 
and it tells us how it expanded, and uh, it tells us what happened during that expansion and how fast, how it accelerated, but it doesn't tell us anything about why. Yeah, I, I'm not going to stand here and claim to you that. that so that nobody I know knows. Why nobody can even has yeah, an this inkling. This is for me to say. This is not for science. This yeah. is for uh, for philosophy. Why and religion? Right. There's why no not? scientific explanation for why and why then, which are related. That's right. Yeah. So the th only thing that would make question. sense to me is that it happens over and over again and has for infinity, but that's not the case according to. Science now, it's not the case that there's a big bang and big crunch, big bang and big crunch, correct? But we know that there's not going to be a big crunch because uh, we would have slowed down. So at some point you <laughs> would reach the maximum size and then turned around and started falling back, right? Uh, yeah. Instead, it looks like we're moving away from each other faster and faster and faster. There's no sign of slowing down at this point. However, just because it's going faster and faster now doesn't mean necessarily that we'll continue to do that, correct? Uh, it could slow down. It could go faster, 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 and then not. Just saying. That it could be. Yes. So <laughs> I don't have any scientific background we, for that. But we have still. no basis to think that that would happen. Okay. But that it's also fair to say that the, whatever is causing the expansion to accelerate and get faster and faster is something that, as physicists, we understand not at all. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's a, it, this is something, you know, there, there's something we call a standard model of physics. Right. And has been tremendously successful over the years at explaining uh, how the particles that we observe in nature interact. In fact, it is what predicted the particles of antimatter uh, that Jim was talking about as well. So for a hydrogen atom, there is an antihydrogen. Um, and the this is a prediction of the model in the sense that there was a, a physical model that was created to explain the properties of observed hydrogen. And then a mathematical oddity was that this same model said, oh, there should be something else that looks very much like regular hydrogen, but is it's sort of equal and opposite. And this would be anti. That's anti. Matter. And then people went out and looked for this stuff, and they found it. They found it, found it, or they found evidence of it? They found it. So, saw, oh, so this stuff exists. Antimatter. Sure. This is antimatter. How could you, how, how did they prove that it existed? Well, you can see the energy it makes when it annihilates with regular matter, and they also see it in collider experiments. Um, so when they smash things together, uh, or when you look at, uh, there's particles that are always coming in on the upper atmosphere of the Earth, and then they hit particles in our atmosphere, and then they create showers of smaller and smaller. There's a cascade. And we can observe all the different kinds of particles by uh, watching their charges. We'll show how they sort of curve through space. Um, and that's how we discovered the antimatter particles. That's now, that is different from dark matter. So the, the, the standard model predicts the matter particles and the antimatter particles. And it gives a, a pretty plausible explanation for, uh, for their physical properties. This dark matter is something that we observe out in the cosmos. And there was no place for that in the standard model of particle physics. Uh, nor is there any place for this uh, energy source that makes the universe's expansion accelerate. Nobody knows what that is. No, no. In fact, if you try to use standard particle physics to predict um, what the strength of that acceleration should be, and you compare that to the strength of the acceleration that we actually observe, it's off by over 120 orders of magnitude, meaning you know a one with 120 zeros after it. So there's something huge that we haven't 
figured out yet. Yeah, so we observe that this is here, but our understanding of it is embarrassingly bad. That's where you come in. You're going to fix that. You're working on that. That's yeah. The Nobel Prize is waiting for uh, for whoever can figure that out. Okay, we have to get more efficient. What is dark matter? Give us a basic understanding of it. I don't know what dark matter is. I, I know how much of it there is. Okay. Uh, I know roughly where it is, and I know what it does to regular matter, but what dark matter is, I have no idea. Uh, I suppose you can give it an operational definition, and sure. it, is, it, it is what it does. That's right. Uh, and it is the stuff that holds galaxies together, uh, and it is the stuff that uh, created the skeleton, a sort of bare backbone on which galaxies are uh, originally created when they were first made billions of years ago. Uh, and we can see that it exists because if we look at the speed with which stars are flying around in galaxies, we can measure their speeds uh, using spectroscopy. Like I said before, we measure Doppler parameters. Okay. Uh, and you can see that stars are either orbiting in circles or that they're moving like a gas uh, inside their galaxies. Uh, and the if gravity works the way that we expect it to, and then we can predict how fast things should be moving. Uh, because there's a certain amount of mass in the galaxy, and that's what holds it together, keeps it from, you know, if something's moving around in a circle, there has to be a force, uh, a, a centrifugal force that's sort of pulling it in. Yeah. And there's not enough matter in all the stars to actually prevent galaxies from flying apart. And this has been known for decades at this point, um, that if you see how fast the galaxies are spinning, they should come apart, and there must be okay. some unseen kind of mass that's holding it together. So not enough gravity in what we see to keep what we see from flying off. That's right. And so there must be something which creates more mass to pull the stuff we see in and have it orbit something. That's right. And it's not just that there's – so you might say, well, fine, maybe there's stuff that's in galaxies that just isn't shining. Yeah. Right? So that seems plausible. Uh, so why isn't it just that? And we can measure the amount of non-luminous matter that's in galaxies also. Uh, and we do it indirectly. So we measure the amount of starlight by just uh, training our telescopes on it and counting up the number of photons we see from a galaxy. We see those pretty pictures. We can count stars. Um, we can't see gas that's not shining. But we can measure its effect on the light from sources lying behind another galaxy. So say you have, um, you're looking at an image of a galaxy. And then there's another galaxy that's superimposed. Well, it's actually it's behind the first galaxy. Uh, and so the light is coming through the foreground galaxy on its journey to us from the background galaxy. And we can see that some of the wavelengths of the light from the background object are eaten away. They're absorbed by the foreground galaxy. And they're being absorbed by the, the sort of non-luminous gas that's in the foreground object. And using those methods we can actually count up how much non-luminous regular matter just atomic matter is in galaxies and it's similar to the amount of stars uh, and it's still not nearly enough to hold the galaxies together and so there must be some other more exotic form of matter that is actually acting through gravity alone but not it doesn't interact with light except through its gravity so we can't see it yeah we can't see this and stuff so it directly. Is dark it is dark we can't detect it. We think that it's probably all around us in the Milky Way. Uh, and people have made very large experiments to try and detect this dark matter in hopes that randomly one of these dark matter particles would bump into a regular atom. We, we know it has to exist. There's no way around it. We just can't see it. We can see the effects of it. We can't see it. 
If there was no dark matter, there would be no galaxies. There would be no stars. There's, there's something out there which creates a gravity, so it has to be a matter. We just can't see it. There, the alternative is that our understanding of gravity is substantially flawed uh, and that it yeah. acts differently on large scales than we thought. And yet that is possible because even Einstein, his real problem was with gravity, right? That's right. Well, Einstein's theory of gravity... Uh, is actually quite similar to Newton's theory of gravity, which was the first theory of gravity. We've only ever had two theories of gravity in the history of physics. Uh, and so maybe there's a third one out there that's waiting for us because uh, in the same way that uh, the planetary motion was first described by epicycles, right? People thought that there were circles going around circles that caused the planets to go back and forth uh, back in the days before Copernicus. And then we, re and we thought that the, the Earth was at the center of the universe. And then... That actually fit the observations that people made with their eyes right. perfectly well. And it was only when people started making better observations that they realized that this epicycle model didn't fit at all. And that's one of the things that uh, people who don't believe in science use. Hey, science is wrong. And, that, and it was wrong. That one was wrong. But really what the way to think about it is that theory was adequate to describe yeah. the data at hand. And then the data got better. And then people realized the theory was flawed. And that's when Copernicus came up with the heliocentric theory, uh, and that fit the data better. And uh, then there needed to be an explanation of the fundamental physics behind um, that, and that didn't come till Newton. Yeah, perhaps gravity, you know, our understanding of gravity is flawed. You know what you need is a gravity telescope that allows you to, to somehow, either maybe not visually, but see at least abstractly see gravity. Well, we have such a telescope. Okay, right? what is that? Well, it's uh, it's called LIGO. So it's uh, an interferometer that actually can see not gravity directly acting on other sources, but one of the great uh, predictions of Einstein's theory of relativity was that if there were large uh, astrophysical objects that collide, that they would create ripples in gravity that would propagate out and would eventually go through the Earth and that we could detect them as little vibrations. Yeah, and you can? And we saw that, which is, again, a prediction that was made 100 years ago uh, from a mathematical theory that was then borne out in the last year. They just got the Nobel Prize for this. So is gravity when you and see so it? There, there's every reason to believe that our understanding is correct, and it's not that there's a, a giant flaw in the theory. Is gravity waves, or is it particles, or is it anything you can see? We think of gravity as Newton would call it a force. Okay. But a force is a weird thing if you think about it, right? So you've got two objects that are sitting apart from each other on space. They're, they're not touching each other, and yet somehow they're pulling. So what is that? Well, we just call it a force, or that's what Isaac Newton would say. Um, and Einstein would say something different. So he would say that the, a force is something that ch changes the trajectory of a, a moving object. Okay. Or, or creates a, a motion from something that was at rest. Um, and that is, uh, things can change their trajectory by just following along paths that are curved. So, for example, um, if you have a ball that's rolling along a flat surface. Oh, I get it. So gravity would, would be a, a shape. Line. Yeah, it's a shape. So if you have a ball that's rolling along a flat surface... Uh, it will go in a straight line. But if you create a little bump in that surface, 
then instead of going in a straight line, as it goes over that bump, it will sort of curve off to the right or left. Or if you make a little depression, it will curve around a different way. And if you didn't realize there was a bump there, if you were just looking straight down from above yeah. and everything was white, you would say, aha, this ball that I rolled across, something tugged at it to get it to change its direction. Right. But you would know, well, all that really happened was that this ball was following the shape of some surface. And what Einstein says is that we can think of things moving around in space as being on surfaces. And when they go near other massive objects, those massive objects bend the shape of the, the surface of yeah. space so that objects move in response to the shape of the space that's around them. So you can think of gravity as a bend in space-time or a shape, or you could think of gravity as the thing that causes that bend in space-time. And yes. then, you, then you're back to point... Then you back to the beginnings. Like, what is this mm -hmm. force that caused this change in the, in the shape of space-time? Yeah, and we usually think of the shape of the space-time as being static, right? So it bends near uh, near massive objects, uh, and when you're far away from objects, it's flat. But it's not that the that shape itself isn't changing. It's just set by whatever massive objects are nearby. And you had asked the question earlier: um, Is gravity a wave? Well, you can actually get the shape to have waves in it in the same way that um, okay. you can think of the surface of a pond as being flat. But if you throw a rock into it, then there are waves, and those waves will move along the surface of the pond, and then they'll eventually die out. All right. And you can do that with gravity just as well. All right, the hard part is over. Now let's talk about the uh, Mars lander. And, oh, no, no, the pioneer effect. There were these – Did we? is it okay to ask you about that? Sure. And this is part of the, my studying on, up on dark matter. Pioneer spacecraft, there are a couple of them, and they observed the speeds of these crafts, and they, they observed a weird speed change, which may be related to dark matter, correct? It could be. But I would say they've observed a speed that was other than what they were expecting. Well, did it slow down or speed up? Uh, I think that it was slowing down. Okay. And what what is the pioneer effect, or what are they thinking it was? The pioneer, it's called the pioneer effect because these spacecraft were the pioneer spacecraft. Yeah, it wasn't that somebody was pioneering. It was, right. That was the name of the spacecraft right. that was moving away from the sun. Right. Uh, and it was moving away from the sun at a speed that was slightly different than what was expected. Yeah. Um, and uh, the it sort of follows the Sherlock Holmes theory that you know once you've eliminated uh, all of the impossible theories, the thing that remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Okay. Um, and really what people quarrel over is whether they've eliminated all okay. of the impossible yet. Uh, and the, the improbable thing that could be true is that uh, either there's dark matter or that there's some change in how gravity operates at large distances. So this spacecraft is at very large distance from the sun. Uh, and so the supposition was that we have learned all of our laws of physics based on uh, exquisite observations of planetary dynamics right around the sun um, in, in close proximity. But if you got to very large distances that maybe we haven't measured what gravity looks like at some very large oh. scale. Is it possible that it run, runs into some kind of particles that slow it down? No. Yes. Oh. It, there there are solar many, many, many possibilities of what could explain like Solar like wind? It could be something like that. It pockets? Could be, uh, it could be radiation pressure from the sun. It could be uh, outgassing 
from some chemical that's on the spacecraft that causes a slight acceleration. Interesting. It's just very small okay. differences. And, and they've done a very good job of trying to chase down every one of those possible problems. Um, but, you know, as a pure experimentalist, uh, something I've found is that it's very, very rare that you actually understand your experiments so well that you can uh, eliminate everything and be 100% confident that you've uh, that you have the extraordinary proof that's required to uh, buttress these extraordinary claims. Okay, now Mars Lander, what was the what? What is the mission, and uh, where are we at, and how well did it, is, it, is it working, and all that? Well, the the landing appears to have been a success, uh, and this is different from the rovers that we're used to that traverse the surface of Mars and would go around taking samples of either rocks at the surface or soil near the surface. Uh, this is a lander that's designed to stay in one spot. It looks much more like one of the moon landers uh, that would come down and have land on a tripod. Uh, but the point of this was to actually drill down and dig down and study the subsurface soil and composition uh, several feet below the surface, which has not been studied with prior missions before. Uh, and one of the pri triumphs is just getting onto the planet to begin with. Um, there's a, a sort of long and sad history of missions uh, getting to Mars, but not actually getting onto the surface and, and getting the job done. Uh, and so this is also yet another kind of landing technology that they had uh, successfully deployed. What are they looking for beneath the surface that might, would not be on the surface? Uh, a lot of times they're looking for water or some other signs that the planet might have been hospitable to life uh, at some point in its past. We don't think there's any life now, of course. but it's And maybe some, would they ever find little microscopic fossils ever? I mean, that would be... They would a, certainly look for something like that. That would be a big um, deal. Yeah, I'm not sure if the, the instrumentation is really set up to, to oh. search for that particular thing. What's it searching system. for, just water? Uh, that's the big one, but also just whether... Uh, th there's also interest in whether in the future humans could harvest things that they need to survive on that planet. How long does it take to get there now? Uh, it's measured in months. Uh, I forget what the actual duration of the trip is. It's, it's not necessarily my area of specialty. So humans my might, understanding is it's sort of you know between six months and a year. So we might find oil there? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, oil's organic. And right? ferry so. it back, right. <laughs> I wasn't thinking. Yeah, as if we need more oil here. <laughs> and so what are the big picture ramifications of what they might find? I mean, what's, why is it important to do what they're doing? Well, I, I think... It is interesting to me to explore Mars, in part just to establish how inhospitable it is. Yeah. You know, in the future, there are certainly humans that are going to dream of colonizing Mars or at least traveling there. And I think this is a worthwhile thing to do uh, for, you know, humanity should be exploring the solar system at the very least. Uh, it's going to be a lot harder to explore beyond that. So we should at least see what's in our backyard. On the other hand, I think it's also helpful to know just how bad some of these other places are at sustaining life. And it just kind of makes us value what we got here on Earth uh, because uh, we've got something good going and we've got to make sure we don't screw it up. <laughs> um, what's the situation on Mars as far as temperature and gas ratios and how inhospitable is it? Well, it's primarily a carbon dioxide atmosphere. And so the amount of oxygen is not enough to support breathing. And it's colder because it's further from the sun. Um, but the, not cold enough that the carbon dioxide freezes out. So there's actually a gaseous atmosphere. So it didn't turn into dry ice, for example. Um, but the, you would need to 
provide some source of energy to create the heat that humans would need and, uh, and to harvest water. How cold is it there? Uh, I don't know, actually. So I know it's cold, but I don't know the exact temperature of the surface. Is it really red, or is it atmosphere that makes it look red? When you drop down in the, the dirt, is it red? And what's the dirt made out of? Oh, it's very much red. Is it dirt dirt? It's like, is it rocks that have yeah, broken yeah, down rocks, just like ours? Yeah, it's exactly the same. It just has a very high iron content. So when you see red soil uh, on Mars or on the Earth, what you're basically seeing is rust. Yep. Uh, and if you go down, like I do, to Chile and go up into the mountains there, uh, they are very red. There's some places where there's green, and that tells you that there's copper in the soil, but uh, predominantly it's red. Any place around a volcano tends to have this, too. All right. Thanks for staying late. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, Brad. Rob Simcoe, Francis L. Friedman, professor of physics at MIT, and awesome, you know, he's our guy. I really appreciate you coming in. And next, if you are in the mood and can think of another angle, something to talk about, please come in anytime. We really appreciate it. Sounds great. Thanks, Bradley. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.